Hi, Tom. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you, Gabriel? Pretty good. Pretty good. So here we are months after the last podcast. So we're not quite as consistent as some of the, you know, those podcasts in the top 10. They're effectively going for broke with their podcasts yes. every day. Yes. Quality over quantity. I was just going to say the same thing. You see, great minds think alike across the ocean. <laughs> so today we're talking about great director debuts or recommended or highlighted or chosen directed debuts we've decided to do this in two parts because there's so many phenomenal directors out there mm -hmm. that we've watched over time um and the list in a way is not endless but it's very very long yes definitely. but we thought so we thought we would choose um the top six three of my choosing and three of your choosing tom from 2000s and upwards so from the year 2000 till the present day and then in part two we'll go backwards yeah because again there's all the classics from prior to that and got a lot a lot more time and scope to, to look at those directors pre-2000 but I think the volume of, of filmmaking that's happened over the last 20, 20 odd years is pretty phenomenal um, mm -hmm. since the turn of the, the millennium. So yeah, so what we're gonna do is we're gonna talk about some chosen directors in their, in their debut films. We've got some criteria that we're gonna be focusing on, because again, you can, you know, we could talk endlessly about each one of their films and the directors themselves, but to save our audiences patience and endurance we'll try to do it in a nice compact coherent concise method which is never the things that are described about the way that i talk on podcasts but i'm going to do my best to take your lead tom okay yeah i'll get my timer ready i'm getting the timer set yeah. up here that's what we might have to do to keep it from running on into the next millennium yeah <laughs> so again i Again, director debuts, I think it's, it's worth talking about, first of all, maybe just outlining the importance of the first film for any director. Because I guess the thing is, I always think with a director is that although we see the, the first movie that, that we make and, it's, and it usually has a great impact, I mean, it can be a crap impact and it can be very forgettable. Mm -hmm. But I guess it's worth remembering that these directors have spent sometimes a long time on their craft, developing their filmmaking skills through, usually through shorts, short films, working on other people's films. Yeah. So it's not like they just kind of come fully formed, is it, as no. directors? No. Even a lot of them come from, nowadays, from, say, like commercials or music videos. Yeah, very true. And I guess the thing is, is that I, when we think about some of those things, and, and this is something that we'll discuss a little bit later about this, this idea of thematic um, traits, things that identify specific directors. Again, that can be formulated over quite a long period of time. Um, you know, for example, one of the directors that I've chosen, Kenneth Lonergan, is a fantastic writer. And if you look at his his IMDb page, he's only directed three films. Yeah. Um, but all around that is the idea of his work as a writer, uh, a writer for theater. And you, you, you sense that sometimes a director might not actually make very many films but that doesn't lessen the impact of the type of voice that they have 
as a creative person. And they might be making very conscious decisions about why they only make a couple of movies. Yeah. Why they decide not to make, you know, many at all. That they prefer to work in television or they like to work more in theater because that's really where their voice can be heard a little bit more. Which I think is interestingly um, the case for someone like Kenneth Lonergan. I mm. think he's a fantastic writer and he doesn't necessarily need to make lots of films. Yeah. But equally, sometimes you can realize that the, the system, you know, if you're working in Hollywood, if you're working in a big, um, you know, production system, some directors can be put, put off by it. You know, once they move into that sphere and the money and, you know, all the compromises they might have to make can push people away from, from, from that form of filmmaking. Yeah. It seems Lonergan had an experience like that with, was it Margaret, his second film, which was mm -hmm, in like, mm -hmm you know, like a studio limbo for a couple of years before it was, it got like, I think edited down and then kind of like quietly released. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, when you talk about Terry Gilliam with something like Brazil, you know, and, and the, the, the conflict that he constantly had with the studio system, um, again, is a really interesting point where you've got someone that's got such a clear vision of what they do. But there isn't the willingness sometimes to make the compromise because ultimately you realize that you are working within a studio system and sometimes people are willing to make the compromises and other times they're not. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, just speaking about the, the special quality of debuts, like you said before, a lot of, a lot of great filmmakers, their first, sometimes their first film or even first few films they might show that like spark of that of spark of greatness or uniqueness, but it's still mm. it's still it's still sort of forming. It's it's coming together. Um, it's like embryonic, not yes, quite there. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And I think I think with the movies that we chose, it, they're special because it, it, they the directors kind of just came crashing out of the gate, and with the very mm. first film, there's like a confidence and a vision that you rarely see with a first-time feature film where you immediately think, wow, this is special, even if it's like the, the very first thing that they make. And I think that that's kind of what separates our choices from maybe a lot of other uh, noteworthy debuts. Yeah, no, it's very true. So what we're going to do is we're going to alternate. Um, so like we said, <clears throat> these are all films uh, and filmmakers that came onto the scene uh, from 2000 onwards. So the, the first director I chose um, was uh, or is Kenneth Lonergan um, and his film You Can Count On Me, which came out in 2000, uh, which is a story about orphan siblings, Terry and Sammy, uh, played by Mark Ruffalo and Laura Linney, uh, who reconnect after a few years apart and how their complex relationship affects the characters around them. Um, that includes Sammy's eight-year-old son, Rudy, who's played by Rory Culkin. I think the reason that I, I chose this film in a way is because I think I've personally always been drawn to, to you know, these small films which are relationship dramas. Um, and what I think Kenneth Lonergan brought to this sort of genre of filmmaking 
it's just a very, very honest approach um, to telling quite a common story mm. about, you know, the way that uh, life can just take a turn and how people react and respond when things go wrong. Because effectively the story, you know, you find out that these siblings who are estranged, but they have a very, very strong relationship. But a lot of their crises root back to the death of their parents when they were younger in a car crash. Yeah, And the way that that brings a bond and has brought a bond to them and you know this is where the title comes you know you can count on me is that no matter what happens and mark ruffalo is a troubled character he's obviously someone that came off the rails and the whole experience of the death of the parents you know has, has thrown him into you know a crisis of his own where he goes from one job to the next he's always drifting he's, he's effectively become a drifter and he's not someone in effect that is consistent and reliable to a certain degree. And, you know, Laura Linney's character, you, you sense that, but she deeply, deeply loves him. Mm. And she feels a massive sense of responsibility for him, which I think is usually the case, isn't it? When when you have something like that, a, a, you know, a, a death of the parents is that one of the sibling usually has to become the responsible one. Yeah. Um, but again, it's, 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 I think it's a it's a beautifully told story about how even when you're a broken vessel and they both are in their own way you know her marriage had fallen apart obviously because she's a single mother but she's got more responsibility because she's got her son to take care of and she's got the relationship between her and you know Rory Culkin's uh, you know the, the the character of the son as as the root for her but she's in a job that she doesn't particularly like um, you know, she's looking for love, I guess, to a certain degree, and this is where Matthew Broderick's character comes in, and he's he's a he's a fantastic character because he's so anti, you know, the 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 character that you would think from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yeah, you perfectly know, against type. Perfectly against type, and he's you know the the perennial boss, you know, the the one who's a stickler for for timing and. Um, you know, people following the rules in in the office and making sure that their screens are all set up in the right way. And he's just a stickler. Um, in a, in a way, he's he's kind of carrying on a character that he probably took on in in the film Election, mm. um, which was another one of these characters that sort of was playing against type and made us look at Matthew Broderick in a different light. But I think at the roots of this film and and the reasons why I think um, it works so well is that. I think Kenneth Lonergan, if we look at something that he does very well, is he he is a fantastic scriptwriter. I think he's a he's a great um, observer of you know the dynamics of these small relationships, what makes people tick, you know the disappointments they might have in life, you know the disappointments we have in each other, you know the expectations we might have on each other, you know because Mark Ruffalo throughout the whole film. I think he's carrying a lot of baggage. He's carrying his own sense of failure. And I think he looks always at, uh, at Laura Linney, you know, Sammy, his sister, um, as the one that constantly highlights that to him, hmm. you know, that she's more of a success than he is. And she's got her life together. And he's the one that screwed up his life. So even before she says anything, he feels like he's being judged. But the beauty in the, in the story is the idea is that there is that stuff that's obviously under there 
her sense of judging is not necessarily judging, it's about protection. It's about feeling like she feels protective over him, like she wants him to get his act together because ultimately that's going to make his life happier in a way. Yeah. But it's never the way that he's going to see it. But I also think what's what's great is the, that there's different dynamics happening because his relationship, even though he's someone that in a lot of ways, you know, Sammy can't rely on him and she puts him in positions of responsibility when he comes to stay with her because he ends up staying there for a while while he's looking for a job and trying to get his, his stuff sorted together because I, I think if I remember correctly, his, his girlfriend um, is in trouble. Yeah. And he's trying to make some money that he can help her out. Um, so, But he's always feeling like he needs to defend himself and defend his actions. But there's something really beautiful about the relationship that he then sparks up with, um, you know, Rory Culkin's uh, character, Rudy, that they're at kind of opposite ends, not opposite ends of life, but Mark Ruffalo's character still has a little bit of a childlike way of looking at the world. But... Mm you know, Rory Culkin's character is looking for a father figure. He's looking for someone in his life that can be, you know, that represents something of, of a father. So I think it's a, it's a beautifully observed film. Um, I think the way what Kenneth Lonergan again does with filming techniques is that he's got a, a very simple and economic way of um, filming. There's nothing outlandish and dynamic in the way that he does things because I think what he's and, and it's testament to the way that he works with actors is that he's only made three films but in those three films four of the actors have been nominated for Oscars hmm. so he's he's a very good character actor and he's he really likes to set the scene and lay things out so that the actors can really do their stuff so he's not a showy director in any way but I think he's got an ethereal aspect to the way that he films because if you look at quite a few of his films, there's always a little bit of a religious subtext, but not religious in an overt sense. It's more of like a spiritual sense that we're all looking for something. You know, that there's something that might be missing and, and the things that we're looking for is usually love. You know, love in the family, the connection that we have to each other and how we're all screwed up in some ways. But this whole idea of being able to make connections with others through family, through our children, through whatever it is, helps us to get by. So I think he's, he's very, very good as, a, as an observer of normal, small lives and how those, those, those play out. Um, Do you, because you mentioned that he, you know, as you said, he's only made three, well, he's only written and directed three feature films, but... Even among those three, you mentioned this kind of religious sort of undercurrent. Um, mm -hmm. But because he has such a like such a tight, compact body of work mm -hmm. as a director, do you mm -hmm. have you noticed any other kind of thematic through lines that sort of thread these these three films together? I think it's it's you can count on me and then Margaret, right? And then mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then Manchester by the Sea. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, if we're looking at thematic threads, I think he's 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 quite drawn to the idea of of crises, you know, and and how they affect us, you know, they're they're almost existential crises. Death acts as a real spark, doesn't it? Because 
in, in You Can Count On Me, It's the Death of the Parents, which obviously happens when they were younger. Um, in Margaret, um, I believe that there's, uh, there's an accident that happens. I haven't, I haven't actually seen Margaret, but have you seen it? Uh, no, but I know that she, it's, it's Anna Paquin, right? And I think mm-hmm, she, mm-hmm. she witnesses a, a bus accident in the, I think in the opening scene, I think. And, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So also, also a death. So, and, and in Manchester by the sea, there's the, the death of the, um, the children, isn't there? Or is it the, the child? I can't, again, it's been a while since I saw, but. Uh, that again is 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 the way that relationships are, are, are strained mm. by the death, uh, you know, a close death in the family. Yeah. And how people are picking up the pieces. I think it's all about the uh, the way that characters are picking up pieces. You know, how do they move on after a massive life changing event, in a way. Yeah. And all, all three films glowing well maybe maybe less so margaret although that has i think uh like something of a i guess you can say a cult following but across the board all this stuff is gets glowing praise even even something even you know margaret which which to my understanding was had more of like a mixed reception but there's never any denying the skill and, and power and craft behind, in particular, his dialogue and his writing. Yeah, and I think he doesn't rely on melodrama. I don't, I don't think he does this thing that... I think he, he respects the audience to, to understand that, that characters have got more complex makeup. Mm. And, you know, he'll always bring a certain drama into the films, into the stories... But I think the way that he writes is that he observes more from the point of view of what he feels is authentic. Whereas sometimes you have films that aren't really going through authenticity. What they're trying to do is they're trying to do things by rote or trying to get the audience to emote, you know, through Mm. melodrama. Yeah. So I don't think he relies on that. I think what he's being quite true to is what the character's motivations would be what they would actually say and that things aren't always as simple as, as you hope they would be because even at the end of You Can Count On Me what's quite beautiful about the story is that yeah he has to leave and he decides that he leaves and although you know Sammy his sister is constantly worried about him and you, you get that sense that she's always worried about him because she's taking responsibility he's the one that reassures her that he's fine mm. you know yes he's going to screw up and he fucks up and he's not He's not going to be like her, but it's almost like in a way it's letting go of the expectations you might have for someone else and acknowledging that their life choices, the way that they do things is actually okay. Hmm. And she can't save him. She wants him to be a specific type of person, but I think by the end of the film, I think he kind of reassures her. I think he's the one that almost becomes the sibling that needs to give her some reassurance yeah because she's you know the the throughout the entire film it tips the other direction like he's the one that's always feeling like oh you're coming down on me or you're telling me things i'm the younger brother i'm the one that has to be told this that and the other so i think there's a beautiful ending isn't there oh yeah that he's he still drifts he's still going to drift and he's still going to do things and he might change a little bit but i think she needed that she needed that sense that you know he was going to be okay 
and that she doesn't need to worry about him in that in in the sense that you know that maybe gives her some meaning in in her own life is like to constantly worry about him that gives her something to to hang on to in a way yeah yeah i was struck uh by that final conversation at the bus stop before he leaves and mm. i loved speaking of lonergan's writing uh there's a very powerful moment where like you said, he's reassuring her, and he he says something like, "Oh, you, you know, remember remember that thing we used to tell tell each other when we were kids. You know, don't forget mm. that. That's still true." And mm. you don't. What I loved is that you don't know, or it's not explicitly stated what that thing is that like that saying or whatever that they shared with one another when they were kids. I guess you can kind of like extrapolate and and guess that maybe it's you can count on me hence the title yeah but yeah. uh but it's not explicitly stated and i think hmm. i just think that's really beautiful it's a nice it's like a uh it's almost like he allows his characters their privacy too yeah no that's the, yeah it's a really good point because it's the same as as sophia coppola with lost in translation we don't have to know what happened at the end we don't have to know what he whispers into her ear yeah but yeah, I, I, I just really, and I, there was another scene in, in this film and it was with Mark Ruffalo's character and uh, Rory Culkin, you know, the, the boy, when he's, he's responsible, he's babysitting while Sammy goes out for a date. Um, you know, he takes Rory Culkin out to play pool. <laughs> so, you know, they're hanging out, you know, and he takes him to play pool where he obviously shouldn't be in a bar. And they're having fun and, you know, he, you know, they end up betting or something and then, you know, they win the, the, the pool match and they come back and, you know, Mark Ruffalo very seriously at the end of the night says, don't tell your sister yeah. that, you know, we did this. And not like in a nice jokey way, like really, really importantly, because you can see how much it matters to him what she thinks of him, mm. what Sammy thinks of him. And it's interesting because Sammy at the time she's going out and she's having an affair. Well, she's having a relationship with a man who's having an affair. So, you know, this this whole idea of moral choices, you know, within the film. Yeah. You know, what are you doing and who are you doing it with? Um, she obviously looks down to him. and But it triggers this whole thing about the idea of trust, you know, or counting on each other. And, you know, Mark Ruffalo's expectation that the little kid you know, who's what, nine, ten years old? Yeah. Is going to have that sort of rational approach of an adult because his relationship with his mother is based on honesty and truth. Yeah, that's but true. I, so, I, I, you know, again, it's a really keenly observed scene where you start to see the dynamics between the different characters, what they think about each other and what they want to avoid, you know, sometimes the real truth mm. with each other. Whereas that's the most important thing is to be honest and to be truthful with each other because that's about acknowledging your faults and the things that make you tick. And that's the only way that you can move on is, is to take responsibility for those things. Yeah. Yeah. Nicely so, said. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, that was my first choice. Um, what about your first choice as your first director? Uh my first choice is a very interesting counterpoint to yours because you were talking about the uh, Lonergan's kind of restraint and he just kind of puts places the camera there and lets the actors do their thing. Uh, mm. Mine is, is certainly more on the visually extravagant side and that is mm. Tarsim Singh's The Cell, 
which was re- also released in 2000. And uh, Tarsim coming from, uh, coming from India and having made some music videos and commercials, uh, he made a famous REM com- uh, music video, I think for Losing My Religion. Um, mm-hmm. But this was his first feature film. And right. sort of an, uh, a very interesting brew of science fiction and horror and, you know, serial killer genre tropes and um, kind of a, a, a cauldron of all these different genre influences. But the basic premise being that Jennifer Lopez plays this social worker who uh, works for this company that has developed this this kind of groundbreaking experimental technology that allows the therapist to literally go into the mind of the patient into the subconscious of the of the patient and she's using it in the beginning of the film to try and get a child uh, a, a child out of a coma to try and go into the kid's mind and and speak with him and uh, somehow get him to come out of this coma and uh, all the while, there is this uh, serial killer who is uh, wreaking havoc in in the city, and uh, played by Vincent D'Onofrio. And long story short, eventually D'Onofrio goes into this sort of uh, self-induced coma, and the authorities capture him, but... They know that his latest victim is still alive and still out there, and there's kind of a ticking clock component to the to the plot where they have to find this woman who he has kidnapped and is uh, and is going to kill, and they have to they have to find her before it's too late, and because he's in this coma, they reach out to Jennifer Lopez. Her name's Catherine in the movie. They reach out to her, and uh, with this proposal of using the technology to go into D'Onofrio's mind to try and kind of find the clues and figure out where this kidnapped woman is before it's too late and before she dies. Um, mm. And really the the bulk of the film is then just her exploring the inner workings of of this killer's mind. Uh, his, his name is Carl Starger. And uh, another, speaking of going against type, you mentioned Matthew Broderick. We have Vince Vaughn in this movie, too, playing a detective, the detective trying to to locate this, this missing woman named Peter Novak. And definitely a, a film that leans very much into visual extravagance. So to go into... Uh, in my mind, what makes the film really special and and noteworthy is absolutely the just the uniqueness of of Singh's voice. He brings he brings this visual flair to the film that's that's really stunning and uh, and unique. And I think it's it's one of those debuts where, although it's the first film. You can immediately tell that this is a, like a fresh voice, a unique voice. This is a, a, a filmmaker who's really trying to do something different with with genre, be it the 
you know, the detective genre or the, the horror genre or sci-fi fantasy, whatever. And the cell kind of amalgamates all those different influences. Um, so just to give a few examples, there's a lot of really uh, just kind of bold, uh, some might say showy, camera movements. And I, I always think about the first time that Jennifer Lopez goes into his mind and it's almost mm -hmm. a point of view shot and you can see um, the cloth that's that's over her face in the it's part of sort of the the getup that that she wears uh, mm. during the process of, of going into his mind and um, this cloth over her face you see like the fabric of the cloth and the fabric starts shimmering and shining and then she gets mm. sucked into this sort of vortex and when she emerges into his mind, there's this beautiful uh, camera movement. It begins underwater, and the camera kind of like dollies up out of the water and then arches, mm. like swoops around and arches over this river where we see young Carl, the serial killer as a child, being baptized. And then it, it does sort of this 180 movement and arches over and then plunges back down into the water on on like the other side of the baptism scene and mm. it's uh it's just very striking and there's you know there's slow motion and these bold color schemes um and i mean it's i definitely i can see a, a common complaint being that it's it's just like overly showy but that's that's kind of exactly what i love about the the visuals of the film like he's uh, seeing is knows that showing, you know, a dog shaking its fur out in extreme slow motion just looks really cool. He he, he knows he knows like what images if you if you kind of extend them out with extreme slow motion, uh, just have this just beautiful visual richness. Um, but I guess that's that's in a way it's always the if you have uh, directors that come from music videos and his cinematographer on this, uh, Paul Laufer, also came from, uh, and he's produced loads of, of uh, music videos as well, mm. is the issue will always be, I guess, with the people that, you know, the critics that were, that didn't pan this film, but basically looked at, looked at it as, as effectively style over substance. Mm is if you have someone that works on a five minute video, can you look at the same director that can actually work with a story over one hour, 40 minutes or yeah. one hour, 50 minutes? Can you, can you have something that threads something that doesn't make it just the style? Yeah, but yeah. I think you can never, dis, you, I, I think he's the sort of director that you can never disassociate from style in the same way as that you would take someone like David Lynch and say, well, the style and the weirdness of the way that he approaches films is integrated into the way that he makes films. Yeah. And I think Tarsum Singh, if you didn't have a story that would hinge it together, if you didn't have characters that you cared about yeah. in the sense of how they worked within that story, I think you could then look at it and say, well, it's purely stylistic. But I think the films that he makes are, you have to treat them as things that are like magic realism. They are like dreamscapes. Yeah. And you, I guess this is one of those questions, isn't it, when you look at film, is that can you have different ways to critique a film 
mm. and to look at a film on a different set of criteria. And I think he is one of those. I don't know if you'd agree or not, but I think yeah. he is one of those directors that you have a different set of criteria to look at. You still have story and all that sort of stuff, but I think he sits within some of these other directors that are working on a slightly different context yes. in a different way. Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, I would group him among those directors. Lynch, I, th Lynch, I think, is a good comparison. Um, and... But I do think there's, with The Cell especially, I do think there's an emotional core that does hold the film together because as the, as the story progresses, uh, Jennifer Lope, the Jennifer Lopez character um, meets the child version of Carl, mm. the serial killer. Mm. And she starts to mm. sympathize for this child that's kind of trapped in the mind of this, you know, very, very twisted um, mm. adult and there's that kind of interesting conflict of you know the the adult person is undeniably uh you know a monster but then inside this adult somewhere mm. deep down is this this scared abused mistreated child that the Jennifer Lopez mm. character kind of starts to become attached to um mm -hmm. and and i think in terms of seeing and his visuals I think it another something else that makes it not just extra not just extravagance or not just showing off is he he does show in the cell this narrative confidence too because in the in the closing act of the film the the pacing is is like nerve shredding because it's mm. um, all the different threads of the story are kind of coming to a head at the exact same moment you have uh lopez you know in the mind of the killer trying to protect the child version from the adult version and then you have vince vaughn who's kind of frantically trying to find this this kidnapped woman before this sort of prison like cell that she's in gets filled with water and she drowns and then you have the people back in the in the in the lab where the bot you know the bodies are being held kind of uh also frantically trying to prevent Jennifer Lopez from being, you know, sucked permanently into his mind. And all these different all these different narrative threads are kind of reaching a fever pitch at the same time. And mm -hmm. it's I think it's just like perfectly paced and, and really exhilarating. Um, mm. but you're right. I How mean, do you feel Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna ask, in in terms of the significance of having someone like Jennifer Lopez um, and it's interesting because she's a singer as well, right? So she comes from music videos. Yeah. She comes from that world. Um, why do you think she's put in there? Because she plays an interesting... She ha she has to be taken seriously as a psychotherapist or a psychologist, right? Yeah. But also within the dream world, she becomes like the Virgin Mary at one point. Mm -hmm. you know, she has to cross over these different bounds. And I can see from you know, I guess her uh, status as a celebrity or, or her beauty or the way that she comes across, I could see the fascination of Tarsum Singh wanting to work with her yeah. visually. Yeah. But how do you think she carries off the film as an actress? Oh, I think, I think she's wonderful in this film. Um, and I think you really, 
I, I do agree that maybe that was part of the, the, the motivation for having her, especially when she's in his mind and she's wearing all these like extravagant costumes. And that's something I haven't even mentioned. The costume design in this movie is, is gorgeous. But yeah, so, I mean, just, just her in these costumes, just visually speaking is fantastic. But then the scenes outside of his mind where she, especially the moments that she has where she's talking with, uh, with the Vince Vaughn character and kind of explaining Mm -hmm. why she, why she does what she does and, and why it's important to her to try and like reach through to these people who a lot of other, a lot of other people would kind of give up on, um, Mm -hmm. I think is very powerful. So I think the, the film is a showcase is definitely a showcase for, um, yes, like the the visual appeal and the the appeal of her as a celebrity, and then also mm-hmm. I think it definitely gives her an opp- an opportunity to flex uh, some some acting muscle and to really show that the character has an emotional core too that you can really uh, that you really buy into um, and. Yeah, and I, I think that that's kind of a, that's that's been another point of criticism about the film, uh, that it's sometimes that it's it's even to this day kind of written off, um, and I think that the the fact that it's Jennifer Lopez in the movie, I suspect that might have to do with why a lot of people kind of shrug off the movie because they kind of go like, oh yeah, it's that like science fiction Jennifer Lopez movie, you know. Um, and, but, but it's so much more than that. And the, you know, the, the response critically was definitely, uh, tepid when it first came out. And even to this day, it, I I guess you can say it has something of a cult following, but it's, um, but still like largely overlooked. And, uh, the cell is one of those, one of those instances where I think Roger Ebert, was like way ahead of the curve because he uh, somewhat, I guess somewhat infamously, you can say, gave the film four stars and mm-hmm. like loved it and raved about it. And um, he was he was definitely an outlier in praising the film. But I think that mm-hmm. it, it's one of those cases where he where he was kind of way ahead of the, the curve in terms of critical appreciation of something that was that was so different um and because of how different it was was kind of just kind of brushed off um and i think that's what that's what was great about his his commentary on it was that and that's what i've always liked about ebert is he doesn't follow he sort of and I guess people can see him that he leads, but I don't. He I don't think he feels that way. I think what he does is he's just honest to the way that he perceives film, and I think that's it's always it's nice to see those types of reviews because it's a reminder, in a very simple, fresh sort of way, to be able to say, well, if a film touches you, that's good enough. Yeah. Yes, he has to he has to explain in a way of why it works. You know, in the same way that we're trying to do. But it's equally as valid to say, why does it work for you? And, you know, he is audacious. And you can compare him to someone like Guillermo del Toro in, in a sense of that he's got the fantastical right there out on, on his sleeve. Yeah. But I think what he does is he's visually, he, he 
puts you in that frame of, of mind that you give yourself over to that world. Yeah. And but it has to be believable. And I think for, for me when I was watching it, I think and the fall the same, because that's that's a film that that, that, that followed. But he's he's able to create worlds that you want to immerse yourself in. And I think that's that's the gift that he's got as a director. Not everyone wants to be immersed in that world and they're gonna try to treat it and criticize it in the same ways that they might treat a fairly conventional science fiction film or a fairly conventional crime you know, picture or a horror film. And, and you said it at the, at the very beginning, this is a hybrid. This is kind of like a genre mashup. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's also remembering that there was no CGI and the, the pure audaciousness that Tarsem Singh has got to, to create stuff that is, is done physically. Yeah. It, it's almost, it reminds me of like opera, you know, when people are working on stage sets for opera mm. and they really have to make it on a grand scale because you're sitting in the theater and it's, you're no longer confined to a screen size of a movie theater. You're thinking about the scale of a theater, yeah. you know, and the size. And he works on that grand scale that when you look at the screen, the screen becomes bigger. Yeah. And it's, it's quite an immense, you know, he works with immensity in a fantastic way. It's almost like a, you know, uh, Escher, you know, the yeah. way that he creates these worlds that you immerse yourself in, but they're all physically done. There's very little trickery that he works with. And that's uh, yeah. another thing to commend him for. Yeah, absolutely. And with the cell, you see it right out of the, during the opening credits, it's like with her, mm. uh, when she's in the child's mind and she's walking along the, the desert and mm -hmm. it's just these gorgeous shots of, uh, like the desert landscape and this just like clear, bright blue sky and this lone the lone figure of jennifer lopez walking across like this this barren desert and it's um yeah and and, and this is in the first you know 45 seconds of the movie and it's already mm. it's it already just like takes your breath away it's so beautifully framed um mm. and yeah i mean i think because we were talking about lonergan and and uh and his his later output um and i do i do agree i like the fall um which was uh, Singh's follow-up to mm -hmm. uh, to the cell. I, in all honesty, I prefer the cell. I I admire the falls visuals, but I feel like I had more of an emotional connection to the cell. Um, mm. And I, you know the his work. He's done more like studio work after that. You know he did like Mirror Mirror, the Snow White reworking. He did. Um, Kind of that Immortals. Ryan Reynolds science fiction vehicle, selfless and yeah, Im Immortals, which is, of course, anything he does is is going to be visually gorgeous. Immortals has some really really beautiful visuals, but I you know honestly I, I don't think he's ever quite hit the hit the peak of the cell again. I hope he does, um, but I I still think that's that's been the the cell. I think remains the apex of his feature film work yeah and I, I it's i think what you said about i think what distinguishes the cell from all the rest is that the cell is rooted in a fairly conventional you know crime film mm. it, it's science fiction and at the time you know you're thinking the matrix came out in 2000 there were so many films that were coming on the back of something like the lawnmower man where it was all about the mind and it was about you know these science fiction visions of the future or even the present that there was all these questions weren't there about what's possible yeah but i think 
um, it was still rooted in a story that I think people could grasp hold of, whereas something like The Fall is more about the imagination and storytelling and, you know, dream. And it, it was a little bit untethered mm. from that. And I guess later on when he's doing Mirror Mirror or he's doing something that's, and something like The Immortals, I guess, was coming off the back of, um, what was the other film? 300. That, that came out. Yeah, 300. Those types of films that were coming out. So it felt like it was in the same way as, you know, you sometimes have films that all come about at the same time and everyone's scrabbling around for the same type of story. Yeah. But I think, I think, um, I think you're right that maybe The Cell was that, that pure meeting point between having a story that was rooted in something fairly conventional but then bringing in his quite um, unique perspective as a, as a visual storyteller. Yeah, yeah, definitely. What about the, what about thematically? I mean, what, if you're looking at some of his other films, do, do you think are there specific thematic things that you feel recur in some of the other movies? Uh, I think between the cell and the fall, I think the the power like the power of the imagination and the power of storytelling. And the ability, the ability of the imagination to help people kind of grapple with trauma, I think is mm. something that you that you definitely see in in the cell, and you definitely see in the fall. And then obviously just elements of of uh, of the fantastical. I know even in the cell, like he, there's even a nod to it in the cell where they they Jennifer Lopez. There's a scene where she she kind of gets stoned and watches Fantastic Planet. And mm-hmm. I think, like, uh, just visually speaking, the Fantastic Planet is a pretty good uh, point of comparison in that, it, it, you know, it's not like he has, like, you know, three-headed creatures running around in his movies, mm-hmm. but there is that, like, almost, uh, like you said, Del Toro, like, this sort of fantastical, borderline fantasy approach to mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. To reality, which I suppose you can see in Immortals, but in his past few films like Selfless or or Mirror Mirror, I don't I don't maybe I'll have to revisit them, but I don't think you can really see that that thematic through line so much. Um, but I think those were yeah, more films that were kind of uh, instances where he was more of a kind of a hired gun. Mm, mm. Yeah, maybe more, I think something that maybe connects some of the earlier films is childhood. I think his fascination with childhood. Oh, yeah. Because there's children in the cell. You know, there's the mind of the child and the imagination of the child because you can see that sparks everything off, doesn't it? Because the imagination of the child, the way that a child sees the world is very different to the way that a grown-up sees the world. And I think there's something within Tarson that he wants to, to embrace that. Mm. This, this, this huge way that children create fantasy worlds. And that's what you see in, in The Fall because it's told through the child's eye. You know, this, this soldier is telling... Um, this child different stories you know with different characters yeah and I guess mirror mirror if you're thinking that that roots back doesn't it to, to fairy tales yeah um, and this idea of so it's fantasy but I think it's also fairy tale it's about children's way of looking at the world mm. um, which I think is quite but like you said later on maybe it goes into a you know more of a hired gun scenario mm. no but I think you're right with uh, with children because the whole um you could argue that the like the crux of the cell is her trying to reach this ch- this sick child who's in a coma, and this is outside of the whole serial killer subplot because the beginning of the movie and the end of the movie, 
are about her trying to reach through to this kid who's stuck in this coma. So uh, that's... And her trying to help this child who's kind of stuck in his own mind. Um, so yeah, that's a good point. Definitely well, childhood. I think, Vince, I think I remember one scene in the film where I think Vince Vaughn, it seems to indicate that Vince Vaughn has suffered trauma as a child as well. Because he says, doesn't he, that someone who's suffered this trauma doesn't necessarily have to become a killer. They can actually become a good person. Mm. Do you remember? I do, and yeah. I think he, and she says to him, oh, do you, do you really believe that? And he's like, yeah, I, I do. And you, you have that look on his face, like, although we don't know anything about his, his background, we don't know anything about his past, it seems to indicate that he's had some trauma. Yeah. He chose a different path. He didn't choose the path of a serial killer yeah. for himself to become that because wasn't that his job? His job prior to becoming a policeman was as a prosecutor, wasn't it? Yes, a legal prosecutor. Yes. He saw these things and he saw people getting off or he saw, you know, the fact that um, people could get off fairly scot-free, you know, under the, the, the guise of being insane or clinically insane or criminally insane. So he wanted to act as, you know, at that stage of prevention. So I think they're both, aren't they? They're both led by different sort of motivations, but they seem to be led through the idea of childhood. Yeah. Something connects them back to that kind of sense of a child. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't think of it that way, yeah. So we've come to the end of part one of this director debut uh, podcast. Um, thanks for joining us. Um, in part two, we'll be talking about Richard Kelly's uh, 2001 film Donnie Darko and Ari Aster's 2018 creepy horror film Hereditary. So thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.